0: Okay, there we go. It's my privilege to uh, be the fill-in preacher today. Brent's on vacation. Actually, the whole family went with him, so it's not just (laughs) (laughs) him. There was a uh, community, a coastal community, where there were a lot of shipwrecks off the shore from where all these folks lived. And people who lived in that little community became concerned because of all the people who were being lost in those shipwrecks. And so they bought a few people got together. They bought a couple of rowboats, a few life preservers, and some ropes, and they began to watch the ocean. And when they would be a shipwreck, they would push their boats out, and they would go and they would collect survivors and bring them to shore. And uh, it wasn't too long that people who had been uh, rescued, out of gratitude, they joined that group. And the numbers of people in the in the rescue party began to grow. Pretty soon the little shack that they had built to keep their couple of boats in and things just wasn't sufficient for the, num- the equipment they had. So they decided to build a new larger building. And in building it, they they built room for them to have a place for training and get together with their with the, with the others who were in the life-saving station. And uh, it, was, it was actually a very nice building. And uh, as their numbers continued to grow. They continued to do their work. Uh, the building just wasn't enough. And so they built onto it. They made it even more beautiful, made it even more comfortable. And soon within the community, the life-saving station became a place that was just good to be at. It was a, it was a good group of people. They enjoyed one another. But they still continued. There was at least a group of people within the life-saving station who would go out and, and would do rescues. Well, then some problems started to happen. First of all, the government came to them and said, you aren't properly authorized to go out and to do this. And they told them they they gave them a cease and desist order. And they really struggled with that. They weren't zoned properly. They didn't have the proper kind of boats and training and everything. And then there was a particularly large ship that went down. And they brought in a lot of people. And these people came in dirty and messy and smelly and bloodied and hurt. And they brought them right into the life-saving station. And members who were there were upset. They said, what are you bringing in here? What, what kind of mess is this? And they, they, they immediately got everybody together and they decided what we need to do is, is we need to build a separate building where we can clean people up and get them, uh, get them straightened out and let them know what's going on here at the life-saving station. And once they get through that process, then we can have them in here and they won't make a mess here because they had really beautified and made this place wonderful. Pretty soon it became difficult within the life-saving station to find people to do life-saving. And they were st- still continuing to deal with the opposition and so they, they decided what they really needed to do was to start a fund so that they could hire professional lifesavers. And so the people were behind that and they started hiring professional lifesavers and the people within the club would, pr- would promote that and they would, they would fund that. But as time passed, the vision for funding that waned and they completely shut down the life-saving operation. There's still a lot of shipwrecks off the shore there, but everybody dies. What you saw in that story is what's called mission creep. Mission creep happens when you start out in one direction and then incrementally things begin to change. Opposition comes, uh, different visions start to be birthed, uh, and, and before you know it, you're not quite where you used to be. This is originally a military term, the word mission creep. Uh, and, it, and it was uh, first coined during the Korean conflict because some of the things that we set out to do, we didn't actually con- con finish, do, and continue to do. I, I, uh, I struggle with mission creep all the time. Maybe you do too. I'll sit down at my desk to prepare a sermon, and I'll think, man, I am focused. I am focused on hearing from God, and I'm going to get something from God for this sermon. And pretty soon, I know the entire history of the Ford F-150 pickup. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I just... There's so much on the internet about that, you know? And and, and i am just gone off in another direction. I get a conviction that I'm going to be the missionary for my street. I'm going to win souls on my street. And I'm not only going to give them my testimony, but I'm going to see them discipled. And pretty soon, what I actually have is a yard with nice grass and pretty flowers. But I haven't won the souls. Even more powerful, the times when... I have a purpose to fulfill, but there's some resistance. There's hurdles. So I adjust my vision to go around the hurdles instead of trusting God, and I end up with a very significant different outcome. Have any of you ever had mission creep in your life? It happens. It happens. And in the story we're going to look at today, we're going to see that we have a mandate for our lives And the people in the story we're going to look at today have had a mandate for their lives. Our mandate is to take the gospel to the far ends of the earth. To every person, every tribe, every nation. Jesus said, make disciples out of them. I'm going to be with you always. You're going to do this. We're going to engage in the gifts of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he's given us. We're going to be used of God. That's our mandate. That's our purpose. But mission creep enters through many factors. And today... We're going to see an example of that through a ministry of one of the minor prophets named Haggai. Haggai. Now, in order to understand Haggai and his ministry, you've got to know the backstory. Because none of these prophets did their ministry in a vacuum. They just didn't walk out on the street one day and start uttering prophecies, just saying things and warning people. There's always a backstory, there's always something going on, and this story is very significant. Let me give you the cast of characters of this backstory. There are two leaders in this story that we're going to see referred to. One is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. I love saying that name; it just kind of rolls off your tongue. <laughs> Zerubbabel uh, is the man who led fifty thousand captives out of Babylon back to the back to the Promised Land, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. Uh, he was sent there by Cyrus, the king of Persia, who got a word from God. Literally, Cyrus said, I heard from God. Cyrus was not a a believer. He just heard from God. And he said, you got to do this. And he sent sent Zerubbabel and these 50,000 people back with a mandate. And he said, you're going to go back. I want you to rebuild that temple. And he gave them the finances to do it. He even gave them the articles that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple 70 years earlier and said, here's all the stuff that was looted. I want you to take that back. And by the way, this is just important for later in the story. This Was when when a king made a proclamation in Persia, it had an effect that they called the law of the Medes and the Persians, and that law said that once it's once that is instituted, once it's signed, it cannot be changed. Uh, We saw this in the book of Queen Esther, that uh, there was a law that had that a king had made and he couldn't change it when he wanted to. So when Cyrus did this, this was it. It was supposed to happen. It was going to happen. now, Zerubbabel is also an interesting man in that he is the great-grandson, or excuse me, he's the grandson of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the last legitimate king of Judah. And so that makes Zerubbabel the last leader in the Davidic line, okay, before Jesus. So Zerubbabel was not a king, but he was appointed as a leader, and he was royal himself. Uh Matthew and Mark record Zerubbabel as being in the kingly line of Jesus. We also see in this story of a priest named Joshua, or Joshua. The Greek word for that would be Jesus, and he is the high priest for Israel or for Judah at that time. And there are two prophets in this story. One is Zechariah, and we're not going to have time to talk about Zechariah today. He has his own book in the Bible. He's one of the minor prophets. But he he prophesies at the same time as a man named Haggai. Now what's interesting about these two is that Zechariah is a very young man. Very young. He was born during the captivity. Haggai was actually born prior to... He lived prior to the captivity and lived in Judah before the fall and would have seen for his own eyes the temple. And so these two men ministered in parallel together among the people of Judah at that time. Now, their mission. We're going to find the mission in Ezra, and we're going to be in two books today. We're going to be in Ezra, and we're going to be in Haggai at the same time. Ezra is an historical book, it tells the story. Haggai is the prophetic word, it's the preacher's words. Okay? So they go together and they complement each other, they explain each other. In 536 BC, motivated by Cyrus, the king of Persia, the people left to go back to Jerusalem. It's a 900-mile trek on foot to go back and to rebuild this temple. They took everything with them that was necessary in order to rebuild that temple, which had been completely destroyed. They followed the 70-year captivity that they had been in Babylon, uh, and they, they go back there, and they find Jerusalem to be a completely uh, destroyed and almost forsaken place. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's got rubble everywhere. The place where the temple stood could not even easily be seen. The, the walls were all down. There was literally wild animals running through the town. And there were squatters everywhere. Uh, it sounds like a, something out of a movie, doesn't it? And they, and they returned to this place. Within months of returning, they had built... Rebuilt the altar of God. They found the place where the altar had originally been in the temple area. They rebuilt that altar and they made their first sacrifice to God. And if you look in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, it says this. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. The first words there are very key. Despite their fear, file that away. What they were doing was dangerous. They were in a really, to them, it's like a foreign place, dealing with a very difficult situation. And they worked though through their fears. Within a few months, they went ahead to excavate the where the temple foundations had been. They found the outline of the old temple. They literally had to hack away brush. And, and turn over stones, and, and uh, like archaeologists figure out where was that temple. And they put the outline out where the temple foundations were, and they rebuilt just the foundations. It's an important part of any building, of course. If you look at verse 11, we see that this building, within months they were able to get to this point. It says, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. They had a, they had a worship service out there at the foundations. He is good. His love endures forever. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But then the seeds of mission creep began to come in. Then things began to shift. There was a little change that began to happen. The first thing was discouragement. You have probably found in your life that when you go through a period of discouragement, it's easy to abandon the path that you're on. You're just kind of like, oh, this is, you know, we don't live on the plane where never has heard a discouraging word. That there are discouraging things that come in our lives. And they they felt this discouragement come over them. They were discouraged because some people were just thrilled at the progress. At the same time, there are other people who were crying because this was not like it had been before. And their their cry was legitimate. This isn't what it was at all. Solomon had built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple was completely covered inside and out in gold, and and it was was beautiful in every possible way. And not only was it physically beautiful, the glory of the Lord had filled the place to the point that the the priests couldn't even do their ministry there. It It had been a place of great history and a place of great glory. And if you look in Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, Ezra records this. He said, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud as they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So discouragement began to come into many people's hearts who were there to do this work. Discouragement sows seeds of change. Maybe we are going the wrong direction. Maybe I was shooting too high. Maybe this isn't something we can really accomplish. But then there was a second factor that came in, and it was that factor of resistance and opposition. Over the past 70 years, people had filled the vacuum that Jerusalem had left. As a matter of fact, it was the practice of the Persians. The Babylonians were replaced by the Persians, but it was the practice of these peoples when they... Won a victory over one nation. They took the people from that place and moved them to another area, and then moved people from another area into the place that was just left vacant. They did this in order to bring uh, an instability for resistance. They didn't want anybody rising up and coming against them, so they put people into homes where they weren't used to. So people who were not of the Jewish faith or the Jewish heritage, had been brought into Jerusalem or in the areas around it and were scavenging and living there and squatting there and just kind of taken over there. And these people were none too happy to see that the people of God, the children of Israel, had come home and were starting to rebuild. The adversaries uh, started taking bad reports for the rest of the reign of Cyrus— and his successor, who we don't really hear of in the Bible much, his name is Cambius II, and Xerxes I, they work to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to rebuild. These adversaries took a particularly bad report back to Xerxes I. You know Xerxes I because he married Esther. And if you remember, one thing about the story in Esther is that Xerxes was easily manipulated. They could tell him anything and he'd go for it. Look what Haman did. Hey, these Jews, you know, got to kill them all. And look what uh, what others did to him. Look what people did to him. You got to divorce your wife. He divorces his wife. People tell him anything. He'd do it. So they they, they send him this bad report. And in this report, they tell him fabricated stories of sedition. They say, These Jews are over here rebuilding their temple. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to start a war. They're going to build up the city again. And this city has a long history of being feisty and being powerful. And they've had great kings. And they they talk about David and Solomon and all these kings. And they're going to build it all up again. And they're going to come against you. And so with the foundations, only the foundations completed, they stopped work because of this resistance. And that dream sat abandoned for 15 years. Sent here to come and do this work. Given complete, unreversible legal authority. Funded to the hilt. Everything necessary, ready to go. But discouragement and resistance changed their direction. All the boldness and determination had been drained away. And so God sent prophets. He sent Haggai and Zechariah. He sends an old guy and a young guy. And he says, you've got to go talk to these people. You've got to get them on track. We've got to get back to where we were. So Haggai stands up. I don't know how he got everybody together, but he delivers this message. And it's found in the first chapter of Haggai, verse number 2. Haggai speaks. He says, These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Let's pause there just for a second. He says, I hear what's going around. God says, I hear it. You're saying it's not time for this house to be rebuilt because you're discouraged. Because you've had resistance. You don't think this is the right time. That things just haven't come together and he says, but let me tell you something. Is this a time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? What they had done was, they, their mission went from, okay, we're going to just get by. We'll live in tents. We'll do what we got to do to build God's house. Now the mission was, we're going to make some nice places for ourselves because it's not time to build the house of God. Paneled houses means that these weren't just dirt houses. They were finished. They were making themselves good homes. The people had lost focus. They ceased to trust him in the middle of opposition. They forgot that God had promised them success. He says, I'm going to see this through for you. But they forgot that. They clearly heard and saw the threats of the enemy, but they were blind to God's promises. Did you ever notice how good our vision is to all the negative our vision is just really sharp towards everything that's not going right. Boy, I got it clear. I have it figured out. I know all the problems. I hear all the discouragement. But then when God says, but, but I've got a promise for you. I'm not sure I'm hearing you, Lord. Right. What we choose to listen to, what report we take, do we, re- do we believe the report of the Lord that says, I have sent you to rebuild this place and bring glory to my name? Or do you believe the report that says, you've got to stop? Or the report that says this just isn't good enough. Maybe some of you have stopped doing something for God because somehow you heard a whisper in your ear, yeah, what you're doing just isn't good enough. This temple's not good enough. It's not like the old one. Yeah, well, your ministry is just not good enough. Your, your ability to teach just isn't good enough. Your ability to sing isn't good enough. Your ability to be a witness, a testimony, a leader, whatever God has called you to, whatever gifts he's put in your life, you believe, start believing that report that says, yeah, but it's just not good enough. And it's certainly an uphill climb. So why don't you just build your own house and concentrate on that? They believed more in the ability of those who threatened them than they they believed in the ability of the one who sent them. It's an issue of who you believe. So they did what we tend to do. They wandered from the will of God. I don't know how many times through the years we say it to ourselves or we say it to others, we hear it from others. I really wonder if I'm in the will of God. It just in asking, we probably know, I'm really not in the will of God. (laughs) Because when we're in the will of God, we know it. But when we're kind of, when we're we're unsure, there's no foundation under us, we're wandering, we're, we're not having results. It's not like what we know God had originally called us to. The answer is no, we're not in the will of God. All this was ending with dissatisfaction and loss. Here's a little saying for you. We end with loss when we creep toward valueless pursuits. That is as sure as anything you can imagine. When we creep toward things that have no value, we will end with valueless pursuits. Haggai reveals that God was speaking to them to refocus their mission and their purpose. And he said, listen, God is trying to get your attention And God was bringing some kind of harsh things into their life to do so. Maybe you have had some harsh things happen in your life that you know God was using to get your attention. He will be as strong as necessary to get your attention. And so he was being strong against Israel now, against the Jewish people now. Look at verse number 5. Haggai 1, 5. God says, give careful attention to your ways. He says, look at the history what's going on. He says, you planted much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to have them in a purse with holes in it. You expected much, but see, it turned into little. What you brought home, I blew away. God says, you had high expectations, but I am frustrating the direction that you are taking because it is not what I set you out to do. In his love and in his mercy, God says, I'm not going to let you succeed at doing the wrong things. What you started with, I'm going to blow away. You're going to plant, you're going to try, you're going to be hungry. He says, you're putting money into... Purses with holes in it. A lot of us could say, oh man, this really, this fits close to home. This has happened in my life. It seems like I'm, I'm just shoveling into an emptiness. The Lord reveals while they're suffering with this loss. Haggai had this strong word. Verse number nine. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. So God worked to get their attention. Look at verse number 10. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. That's quite an indictment. But God said, I've got to get you back on task. I've got to get you refocused. They brought want and lack and poverty into their own lives. Sometimes we blame the circumstances. We look at the, you know, we blame people. We blame the economy. We blame the place we live. We blame the uh, the persons in our lives. You know, we blame all kinds of things. And God is saying, you know what? This is because of your choices. He says this is these are your choices. This is the fruit of what you have done. Sometimes we say, well, the spouse you gave me, the, 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 the kids I have, the parents I have, the, you know, we, na- we name all kinds of things, and God says, no. Yeah, I let those things happen in your life because I need you back on focus. I need you back on track. God goes to work against our selfish goals when we fail to put Him first. And I do not want God working against me. We have our reasons, just like the remnant rebuilders. We have our excuses. We say things like, the timing's not right. That's literally their words. The timing's not right. That's the problem. There's opposition. I've got a lot of things working against me. But heed the words of Haggai. It's because of our choices. We plant much and harvest little. God will frustrate our plans, our business, our investments, our relationships, as long as we neglect his purpose to follow him. because of these choices we have a sense of dissatisfaction and unease so there was a prescription given, God just didn't say you know, I've had it, I'm washing my hands of you not at all he said I have the prescription, I have the fix this is what you need to do look at verse number 8, Haggai 1 8, he said go up into the mountains, bring down timber and build the house, he said head for Home Depot better head for Jerry's Get the stuff and get to work. He said, this is a pretty simple thing. You're supposed to be here. You're going here. Go back to going here. He says, go get the materials and start to rebuild. He was telling them to reject the negative talk and the report that they had heard. Resist giving in to the pressure and the obstacles. He said, go forward with my commands and and do it in spite of, of the signs and the things you see around you. It's kind of an interesting concept that God didn't say, if you're willing to do it, I will lift the problem and then you can do it. He said, do it. Then I'll take care of the problem. We think backwards, don't we? Lord, remove my problems, then I'll follow you. Remove my problems, then I'll obey your will. He says, no, obey my will, I'll deal with your problems. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, remember who he is? King David's great, 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 great grandson. Then Zerubbabel, I'm not going to try to say their parents' names, and Joshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people of Israel obeyed the voice of the Lord. The Lord their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. They realized the anointing on his life and they said you're right and the whole people said we will do this. And I love this next verse and the people feared the Lord. They chose to decide not to fear other people. We're not going to fear what these what these uh, instigators are saying. We're not going to fear what the people who are putting pressure on us are saying. We decide we're going to fear the Lord. They did not wait for the opposition to turn. They acted now. When we fear God more than we fear our enemy, then good things begin to happen. Does this mean that they had no resistance going forward? No, there was still resistance going forward. But God now was working for them in that time of resistance. Nobody ever said you'll never have a problem in your life. But Jesus did say this. When you have problems, don't worry because I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When we're walking where he's walking, I've got his overwhelming power going with me. As a matter of fact, when these, when these people decided to get back to rebuilding, the resistance increased. We wrongly assume that all is well just because there's less resistance, because, list- because our resistance lifts. We think, oh, everything's great now. No, maybe we're going the wrong way. That's why the resistance lifted. So the old opposition was still at work, but God's hand proved greater. And I'm going to finish this story by telling you what happened. A guy named Tetanai was the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Trans-Euphrates was what the Persians had set up, made the the promised land, this area they called Trans-Euphrates. They had a governor there, and I want you to assume with me that he was in email contact with the king of Persia. Okay? So he fires off a letter, an email, and here in the Bible is the content of that email. He said, Dear Darius, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. What a tattletale. (laughs) The king should know. I am your guy. I am letting you know what's going on. They were told to stop and they are building. And then I love this next part, especially verse nine, we questioned the elders and asked them who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure. We also asked them their names. I like this. This is like in grade school when people were bad and some kid stands up and says, I am writing down names. Do you know that? Remember that happening? I am writing down names. That's what this guy did. He said, I want you to know that I went in there and I had my clipboard. And I said, who is doing this? I am writing down names. And he is writing down names. And he's putting them in the email. Here are the people that are doing this. And I am going to tell. And boy, oh boy, you are in trouble. He says, we asked them their names so we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. You know what? What did the people of Judah do? They got on their computer and they sent off an email. And their email is found in verse number 11. And they wrote the king and they said, apparently they've written down some names and you are wondering who we are. Here's the answer. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple. And that temple was built many years ago. A great king of Israel built it and we're going to see it finished. Well, that's a different answer than we had before. Oh, we'll be quiet. We won't do it. No, we're the servants of the God of heaven and we're rebuilding this temple. And you know, there needs to be an email sent off when the enemy comes against us and says, you can't do this. You can't succeed in this. You can't be used of God. We need to send off an email and it says, I want you to know who I am. I am the servant of the Lord Most High and I have been called by him to do this work and I am here to do this ministry. And I, you want to know, here is my name because that name is written in Heaven, and that name is going to be on my on his lips when he says, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Caps
1: locked. Amen. Caps locked
0: on. Wow. So, what did King Darius do with his new information? He did what every good king did. He got on Google. He said, "We got to check out the archives." see what's going on here. And they he had people get on the Google machine and they started, what's going on? You know, these people went back, they're, they're doing this. And here's what he found out. He found out that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, that King Cyrus had sent these people, he had financed them, he had given them all the looted articles and sent them back. And do you know what he sent back in his email? He said, you stay away from those people. And he said... And and furthermore, you trans-Euphrates people, I want you to finance anything they need. If they need money for this, if they're short, you give it to them. And he said, and when they get it built and they start to worship, you provide all the sacrifices and everything they need to carry on. Pay the priests, do whatever it takes. And he said, and I also want you to know, and this is in the Bible, read it for yourself. He says, I want you to know that if any of you defy this order... We are going to come and tear down your house, kill you, and impale you on the rubble.
1: I guess. I guess.
0: Well, yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> we will make haste and do that. Now, this, com- this temple was completed, I mean completed, in rapid time. In a fraction of the time that they had sat around waiting, they finished the whole thing. They waited for 15 years, doing nothing since the foundations had been built, and within a, a matter of short time, they completed it. And if you look, this is rather lengthy, but in Haggai chapter 2, you'll see kind of the conclusion of our little story here. It says, on the 21st day, oh, I, I'll, I'll skip down to verse 3. It says, Haggai is preaching. He says, "All of you who is left, who saw this house, all right. Excuse, I'm going to start over. I can't read. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not like? Does it not seem to you to be like nothing? But now, be strong, O Zerubbabel," declares the Lord. "Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land," declares the Lord. "And work, for I am with you," declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house that they just built. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. What was going to make this new temple greater wasn't the building. The building was only a shadow of what they had in the past. It was who was coming to that building. He said, it's coming soon. He says, the desire of all nations is coming. He's going to walk through these temple gates. He's going to minister in the temple. The Messiah himself is going into this temple. And he's going to sacrifice himself on a hill that overlooks this temple. And the glory of God is going to fall because you have built this temple. And he said, and he's going to bring peace. We look at things through earthly eyes. God was saying... I want to give you a vision through heavenly eyes, through eternal eyes. Some of us say, oh, the work I'm doing, it's so inconsequential. Chris and worship team, if you guys can come back. We may say the things that I'm doing are inconsequential. They don't really matter. I'm a small, uh, I'm small potatoes. I I don't have much, uh, I don't have much talent. I don't have much to give. My, my, my work isn't going to make a difference. Oh, you haven't seen eternity. You haven't seen what's going to happen over, over, the, over all the years of eternity that are coming, over all that God is going to do in your life. Don't look at the moment today and say, oh, I'm nothing. Look at eternity and see what God is going to do. We are the children of God Most High. We have been called to do His work. And when we make that adjustment, onto his path. And he releases all the glory of God for us. You might find yourself in this story. You might say, I've, 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 I've had creep come to my life. I'm off track. I'm not doing what God called me to do. I've kind of been compromising that. You have a mandate, a personal calling in your life. Don't let it be dissuaded. Don't let it be disrupted. Don't let pressures around you. Don't let discouragement change a thing. Today, God is saying... You might be suffering some loss. You might be planning much and receiving little. You might feel like your, your, your financial life has a hole in it and everything's draining out, like your, your work life isn't making a difference. Your family life is suffering. God is saying, don't concentrate on those things. Get on track with where I've placed you. I'll take care of everything else. Jesus summed it up really well in Matthew 6, 33, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness He says, and then all these things, all these things will be added to you as well. Would you bow your heads with me today? The challenges you're facing today is God saying, give me the opportunity to show myself faithful in your life. And if you're here today and would say, Pastor Todd, I have just kind of fallen into mission creep. I, I've, I've allowed other things that are uh, not the primary purpose of my life to become the purpose. I've abandoned something and said, this just isn't the right time. It doesn't seem to be working out. This isn't the moment that, that God's going to do it. And God got to say, no, I want you to get back on track. This could be in your personal life. It could be in your marriage. It could be in your relationship with your, your kids or your parents. It could be in your work. It could be in your ministry the purpose of the Holy Spirit being within you. And today, God is calling you back to mission awareness, to mission-centeredness. With your heads bowed and eyes closed today, how many people say, Pastor, God is calling me back. Hold your hand up right now. God is calling me back. I see hands. Yeah, I see hands here. You can put them down. Would everybody stand up with me today? I'm standing on home plate. Home plate is the goal in baseball, right? Get back home. I want to see you today come back to that mission-centeredness of your life. And so, as Chris is playing, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want every person who raised your hand, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come. But you're not going to come alone. If you raised your hand today, there's a couple ways that you're not going to come alone. First of all, if you're with somebody... In a moment, I'm going to ask you to lean over to them and say, hey, I'm going up there. Would you come and just be my support? Would you come with me? Okay, so if you're with a friend or a family member or somebody like that, just say, hey, I'm just going to go up there, but I, I really would appreciate your support. Would you come with me? Also, you won't come alone because I'm going to ask every elder and leader in this church to come and join me here too. And we're going to pray. All right? So take a moment right now. Find that person who's going to come with you if you, if you don't have somebody. And let's come up. Come on. Come on not going to go alone. You're going to meet people up here who are right on mission with you. Praise God. Amen. Come on. Coming back to purpose, coming back to singularity of mind and thought. This is why we exist. Now I want you to find somebody to, to, go lay a, your hand on a shoulder. Leaders that are up here, go find somebody. Just lay a hand on their shoulder. Be with them right now a song we used to sing, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, remember that? This isn't just about what we sing, this is about our whole lives, coming back alignment and purpose so I'm going to ask you today to pray a prayer with me, just a simple one and I'm going to ask the whole congregation to pray this after me, with you and this prayer, so you know where we're going, you don't want to say I don't know where we're heading, what are you going to ask me to do? in this prayer we're going to just say Lord, I have gotten off track I've allowed pressure or I've allowed distractions to come into my life, and I'm not in that place where I know you've called me to be. And so today, I'm coming back to mission-centeredness in my life. I know you've been frustrating my life on purpose in order to get my attention, and so today, I'm yielding to you. I fear you more than I fear those things around me. I believe you're going to walk with me through now every trial difficulty that might be in the way because I will be able to say with certainty, I am the child of the God most high. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I've allowed myself to get my eyes on distractions, on pressures, and on other things. I'm returning to you mission-centeredness. I fear you, not the things around me. I count you as most important. I'm going to live my life in a new way. A life of trusting you, seeing your miracles in my life, and a whole new outcome because you will now bless me. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you do something, everybody here and in the congregation, if you lift your hands and just begin to praise God today for what he's doing? Let's lift our voices, come on. Father, we thank you today for the work that you are doing, for the change that you're bringing about in our lives, for the blessing that you are now releasing, for the direction that you're strengthening, for the, for the power of God coming in us and working in us in a powerful new way. Thank you, Lord, for your touch. I praise you for this. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Would you all just stay right here? We're going to just worship. Uh, Jordan's going to lead us in a song, but let's just lift our voices and let's praise them together. Go ahead, Jordan.